1: Hello, friends, and thanks for downloading another weekly episode of the Money Girl Podcast. My name is Laura Adams. I'm a personal finance expert and award-winning author based in Austin, Texas, who's been producing this show since 2008. Last week, we covered six tips to know whether a car loan or lease is best for you. If you missed that episode, be sure to check it out. It also includes the answer to a listener question about what to do if your payment becomes unaffordable. Remember that the notes for each episode plus the complete archive of Money Girl podcasts are always on the Money Girl section at quickanddirtytips.com. If you've been enjoying the show, I've got a quick, quick request. Let me know. The best way to do that is by taking a minute to submit a very short, quick five-star review on iTunes. That helps the show stay visible there so more people can find us, join the Money Girl community, and ultimately live richer lives. This week, I've got a terrific interview for you. This is episode number 521 Five Steps to Financially Prepare to Quit Your Job or Change Careers. I'm excited to talk about this topic because I think quitting your job to pursue a new career, to start your own business, or go back to school, or maybe even just to take a sabbatical, is both very exciting but also very risky. For just about everyone, the idea of taking this type of risk to chase a dream kind of starts with one big thing. It's money. How am I going to finance this jump? How am I going to get the cash to be the backup in case things don't go so well? So a lack of funds can definitely be one of the best excuses not to make a jump or not to make a career move. Before you follow your heart and make a leap, it's really wise to make sure that your finances will support you. I don't want that to hold you back, so today we're going to talk about how you do it in a responsible way. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution, but I've got a guest today who has done a lot of research about what makes a successful jump, and he also speaks from experience. He left a cushy job as an investor at Bain Capital Ventures to chase a dream of playing professional squash. You may have already gotten an introduction to Mike Lewis if you listen to the bonus episode that we published in the Money Girl feed a couple of weeks ago. I wanted to speak directly to Mike about the financial side of making a jump. We all need to understand how to take the right risks at the right time, but as I mentioned, it's got to be a smart way that boosts your chances of success and really doesn't take you back many, many steps. So today you'll hear my conversation with Mike Lewis, who is the founder and CEO of When to Jump, a global community of people who left one path to pursue a very different one. And in January 2018, his first book, When to Jump, If the Job You Have Isn't the Life You Want, will release worldwide from a division of Macmillan Publishers. In our conversation, we talk about what financial steps you should take before leaving a comfortable work situation to follow your passion. Some of the topics that we cover include common trends among people who have made successful jumps, how to create a budget and a pitch deck that prepares you for a jump, whether you should tell other people about your desire to jump, how to let yourself be lucky after doing the right amount of preparation, straddling the line between being pragmatic and taking enough risk, and a lot more. So here's my interview with Mike. Mike, thanks so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I think so many people are looking for better opportunities, but they are really they're in a good place they're comfortable and you know if you're not if you don't have an itch or you don't have a reason to jump in a lot of cases i think it can be hard um and and maybe you've got a great situation but it's really not the life that you want. And I think that makes it really difficult to make a move because you can convince yourself that, hey, I'm I'm just fortunate to have the job I have and I'm lucky to be here. But the reality is there may be something even better out there. So I'm interested to know how you got into this whole mindset of jumping and why you wanted to write this book in the first place.
2: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be on the show, and I think you're doing such a great job bringing really pragmatic issues to light. And one of them, like you said, is thinking, "What the heck am I supposed to do with my life?" And I think that question is particularly tricky when you're in a comfortable space, whether it's a job that isn't pushing you but is comfortable, um, or and maybe it's and or a life that is just kind of on the rails. It's it's moving along and you know what's coming up next week and the week after and all that's great. But for me, I found myself on that track and I had a little voice in my head. And that voice kind of said, hey, you know, there's something else you want to be doing. Now, my something else I wanted to be doing was was a little bit crazy. It was to quit my job and play professional squash around the world. And it was a dream I had as a kid growing up. Squash is like rack up, Ball or tennis in, in indoors. Uh, it's played with two people against a wall. It's very kind of niche in terms of who plays it, particularly in the U.S., particularly where I grew up in Santa Barbara. There's probably five players my age that played competitive squash west of New York City, and yet I love the idea of taking some time off in my life at some point playing at the highest level. And of course, life gets busy, and you get on a staircase, and that's what I found happening to me. I got to you know for make it to college. I played squash on a team and then I got a job and that's what I thought I was supposed to be doing. And a few years in, Laura, I realized if I don't make a decision on my own, no one's going to walk into my door and open it and say, hey, Mike, remember you had a dream you wanted to chase. You wanted to go play professional squash. And so my book really came out of my personal decision and struggled to figure out how do you actually go chase your dreams? Because there's a lot on social media today that talks about you know, living your truth and chase your passion. But I wanted to know the nitty gritty. And as you know, that also has to do with how do you finance your dreams?
1: Yeah, and I really appreciate also the idea of jumping When you're younger, if it's sports-related, I mean, that's something that you truly cannot wait until you're older to do. There's a certain window of time where you're going to be physically fit enough to, you know, uh, pursue a sport. So it's almost like you had a little bit of a a nudge with that, knowing that, you know, if you're going to do it, you got to do it while you're still good at the sport. So was that part of it? Do you think that kind of spurred you on maybe a little more than if it had been, let's say, creating a startup company?
2: Oh, sure. I think there was certainly a catalyst around the fact that, like you said, there was a natural window that was small and shrinking uh, with every year that I sat hunched over my keyboard at my desk. But in some ways, that was almost like the excuse, because I knew if I could say, hey, there's this thing I really need to do, and there's a timestamp on it, uh, people could understand it. And for me, if we're being completely honest, I think I needed that um, that validation or that acceptance by my peers and my bosses. But what I found, what was so fascinating was that so many folks that I started to meet and whether it was a person on the bus next to me or a lady down at the street at the bar or someone who worked the front desk, they each had a a jump they wanted to make. And while theirs wasn't athletic related, and maybe it wasn't even changing their whole life or leaving their job, they could share with me what it really took to do it. And those people made me feel like, yes, my jump might be crazy, but it wouldn't be stupid.
1: Your book, which is coming out in January 2018, has a lot of case studies of folks who made a jump. And I'm curious if you took away any learnings or you saw any trends there among the folks that you interviewed to see who made jumps more successfully And why? You know, are there any consistent themes there that we need we need to keep in mind as we're making a jump?
2: Absolutely, and and this is where it gets kind of crazy because I remember in January of thirteen, I was just starting to think of my own jump to go play squash, as I said, and I reached out to a woman who had left Wall Street to go be a cyclist, and I'd 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 seen an interview she gave, and I ended up cold calling her, and she picked up. When she picked up, she didn't tell me any about how to be a cyclist or making it to the Olympics, which is incredible that she was able to do so, having never cycled before, you know, competitively getting into the sport in her mid 20s. And yet when she picked up the phone, she she talked about the nitty gritty, the planning, the saving, the the hard conversations, the failures. And that's when I thought, could I collect more stories like this just as inspiration? And to your point about what I found, I think the genesis of the book was that Across all of these stories, and now there's 44 that made them their way into the book, from you know baby boomers to millennials, single parents to uh, first-generation immigrants, people from the panhandle to the UK, the West Coast, East Coast, every kind of type of person making every type of jump. As I put together the stories, you could actually thread a common theme through each one of them. And so what I did was I grouped the themes into four buckets, and I called it the jump curve. And to me, what's been miraculous is that as you look through the book and as we continue to collect stories on our community and through our website and other ways, you can map almost every story in person to a place on the jump curve. And what I like about the jump curve, it's digestible, it's easy to follow, it's not snake oil or super prescriptive, but it really shows the mix of, like I said, a little bit of inspiration, which is, you know, chase your dream, have that voice, listen to it, And a little bit of pragmatism of, okay, how are you going to do it? Start making plans, budget, create slides and spreadsheets if you need to, get into the nitty gritty. And in each of the stories that you'll find in the book, they map to one of those phases on the jump curve.
1: So for anyone listening who is thinking, yeah, I really would like to make a jump, whether it is... Changing a career, maybe going back to school to get more education. Maybe it's taking time off to go do something fantastic like travel or even something completely different, like uh, building your own company from scratch. Don't you find that in a lot of cases, this financial uh, fear or uncertainty plays a really big role in in holding people back. Not only is it the mental game, but it's also the financial part of that game as well?
2: Oh, it's. I think it's the gorilla in the room. And it's probably the easiest thing to use as an excuse, right? To say, geez, I just don't have the money. Wouldn't that be nice? And I I use that for myself for a long time. I thought, how would I go travel around the world when I don't really have the savings? I'm just out of college. And what you find, I think, is you you unpack it little by little. You take what I call 10,000 unsexy steps. And usually that starts with something as small as saying, I'm going to put away five bucks a day if you put away five bucks a day, you're saving nearly $2,000 a year. And there are a lot of jumps that can start and maybe even go through their full life cycle with just $2,000. And so for me, it started with a tiny little baby step into that unknown and breaking it down into the smallest little piece possible.
1: Okay, great. So I love that. So start with some kind of a plan to begin saving a certain amount of money. So give me an idea on how you figured out what you needed to save. Is there some kind of formula or uh, grand plan that you use to kind of back into that number?
2: Well, I think the numbers change as the plans change. I think what I needed was enough to feel like I did my homework. And very specific to my own uh, experience. I wanted to go for three months. I wanted to say, what do I need to live on, to to train on, to compete on, to travel on for three months? And I, I call it budgeting for the bad. It's it's figuring out what is likely the worst case scenario, and then maybe even adding twenty or thirty percent to that. Maybe even going time and a half times that because, or cost and a half times that because you don't know what's going to happen. And so I broke it into my what I call the staying alive costs my work costs which in that case was just you know cost to travel to get gear to enter tournaments and then the kitchen sink costs you know everything else the miscellaneous the things that might come up having a little bit of budget for a rainy day so between staying alive and the work costs and the kitchen sink costs i came up with you know it was probably a few thousand bucks that i would need and what i did here was i also said i'm gonna just stay with friends friends of friends or host families, because some of these tournaments, because there's not much prize money in pro squash, believe it or not, <laughs> they'll offer you to stay with a, a family that volunteers to have you on a, on a couch or in a spare bedroom. And so I knew that I could lower my my living costs a bunch if I could stay with people along the way. So my budget uh, was pretty small on the, on the grand scheme of things, but I still needed to get those first few months covered. And what I found as I went out to save money and I pitched sponsors to get logos on my jersey in return for some cash is that people really wanted to help. And that's another lesson. Once you put yourself out there and you say what you want to do, yes, you're saving for yourself, but you're also letting other people figure out what you're trying to get to and see how they can help you as well. And I think that's such an underrated part of the jump experience. Most people don't mention what they want to do or don't say it to others. And that's probably the biggest mistake you can make. You got to get it out there.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. If you had told anybody what your dream was, either family, friends or coworkers, how did you feel about keeping it close to the vest versus kind of putting it out there, giving it to the universe to, to work it out for you? Did you feel some tension there?
2: Oh, totally. I think for a long time, too long, I kept my, what I call the little voice in my head, just in my head and I actually talk about this in the book, it's it's funny, we spent a lot of time unpacking with uh, my editors, you know, why was it such a big jump? And for me, I felt a bunch of things holding me back. I felt guilt. You know, my parents sacrificed a bunch to get me to college. It was a big deal to get to school. Getting this job right out of school at a, at a pristine, you know, it was a venture capital firm. It was what I thought I'd get to do when I was, you know, 20 years into my career. And to do it, you know, right out of school felt like I had to have a very good reason to give it up. And playing professional squash just didn't seem like that, at least to other people. And I felt like I'd be letting my parents down. I felt like it'd be very selfish. Um, I felt like no one would understand. And it goes back to what I was saying a minute earlier. When you have a voice in your head, as I said in the book, you got to just tell someone. So I remember sitting down with a friend of mine's father, who I deemed a Switzerland-like character in my life, who had no... Bias or horse in the race, and, and would give me a, a really you know um, you know a, a objective kind of weigh in on what I was thinking of doing, and I I got him for coffee. I I sat down. I whispered. I stammered for a bit. I got into this long drawn out you know vision that I finally could dump on someone. And when I was done, he said, you know Mike, as I tell my kids, you don't get redos in life. If you want to go, just take the steps to make it possible and go. And when he said that to me, I thought, why didn't I sell this guy earlier? Because that's what it's about, is, is finding someone or other people that can give you that reinforcement. And yes, there were people that said, hey, you're a little bit crazy or don't quit your day job. But it's so important to hear what they have to say and understand why and then make the decision for yourself. But I can tell you, if you're just thinking about it in your head and you're going to work and going to sleep and you're waking up every day, It's going to drive you crazy, and not a good crazy. It's going to really make you feel like there's no way you can tackle this this jump. And everything good, as I talk about in the book, everything good that happened with my jump came after I started to say it out loud.
1: That's great. So yeah, putting maybe some of these ideas and frustration into your plan, if you can like funnel all of that into something proactive. As you mentioned, you know, starting to create your budget, budgeting for the bad. I love that. That's really putting like a buffer on the number. And that having that buffer can also give you a lot of confidence and feel like you've got a little bit of an insurance policy that, you know, if something really goes bad, you're going to be Okay. And I think that's just key for so many things in life, but particularly for making a a big jump.
2: The other thing is when you, you know, I literally made a slide deck, you know, we made a lot of slideshows. I was very good at PowerPoint at my job, not to brag, but that's what we kind of lived in was Microsoft Office. And so I would take our template that we would use to pitch different um, organizations or partners, and I made a, a pitch deck for myself. I made a jump pitch deck where I would say, here's what I'm doing on page two is my budget, on page three is my plan of where I'm going, how I'm going to play squash around the world. And then the other pages were were why I'm doing this. And it was so literal. I would say, here is why I really need to scratch this itch. And some of the reasons were very blunt. It was when I'm 80 years old, I want a, a great story to tell my grandkids. And because I would regret not trying, you know, things like that. And so I think just to your point around putting down the budget and and budgeting for the bad, you also want to just be totally honest because when you're your most honest self and you expose that vulnerability, that's when the good things happen. And, and you really are, are convincing yourself by by writing these things down that this is worth doing.
1: I love that. A pitch deck for yourself. We all probably need that in some aspect of our lives. Also in the book, you talk about testing before trying. So how do you do that?
2: And I think that's where people go wrong a lot of the time. I think it's very easy to dream up what it looks like to, you know, to be a rock star. People want to see and live that 1% of being a rock star that we watch on TV or in a concert. There's a 99% of that job that you might not want to do. Or be a baker, you know, making pies is actually really tough. You have to wake up early. And so the sooner you can start to dabble in the full 360 degree view of what that jump would look like if you went and made it before quitting your job, the better. And so for me, that looked like joining the the pro squash tour part time. I would take a sick day and go play a tournament. I would play nights and weekends before work and at lunch. I saw very clearly what it looked like to be on someone's couch in Rochester, New York because I went and did that while I was still working. And I think that's just really important, whatever your jump is, to get that taste before you go.
1: We forget how easy it is to connect with people and have conversations. So I would encourage people who are listening, if you're trying to get into a new career or even starting a business, start by having conversations. It can be so enlightening and can really help define whether you make a move or not, or even how you make a move uh, specifically, maybe even when you make a move.
0: Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries,
1: Freakonomics Radio. Every week, host and best-selling author Stephen Dubner dives into the hidden side of business, economics, and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, and Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics, like why the best employees can make the worst bosses and how whales went from being economic engines to environmental icons. If you're a curious person looking to better understand the world around you, you'll find everything you're looking for on Freakonomics Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What can people do to turbocharge their ability to invest in something that might be a little scary financially?
2: Depending on the business that you want to start, there could be a huge cost of investment that's up front. And I always say beg, borrow, and and barter, because similar to what you you said earlier, actually, just a minute ago on, on how important conversations are with people, I think that's the key to playing this classic bootstrapped game. I think if you can find people that are doing what you're doing and are established and you know the, the, the operation is, is in motion and cruising along, you should go over to them and say, hey, I'm looking to, to do what you're doing, but I'm a couple of years behind you. I'm just starting out. And there's obviously some big upfront costs. Uh, what do you think is the best way forward? And what's great is you're not asking for anything uh, tangible. You're asking for advice. And I would say that's probably the best piece of advice I could give is when you're asking for something disguise it as advice and not even disguise but if they only give you advice on on how to best um, you know get those upfront costs out of the way that'll be valuable. but what they'll likely do is they're gonna open up their game plan that they've used because people want to help people they're willing to to pay it forward because they've been in your shoes any operation that's an established operation that's Going and and printing money and open for business at one point had to start somewhere. So, if you can say to them, Hey, I'm at that front point, that starting spot, I think what you'll find are a couple things. One, they might have old equipment that you might be able to use. So, let's say you want to open a coffee shop and you need one of those really nice espresso makers. Well, you know, in tech, people talk about failing fast and, you know, done is better than perfect. I think the same thing is true for any business, really. So, if you want to start a coffee shop, Get a good but not great coffee machine. Talk to uh, your local coffee shops and say, hey, what's the best advice here? What do you think? I'm looking to spend X dollars. And the odds are they're going to be able to say, hey, we've got this old one here, or we know a place that's got a great deal, or my cousin's from Italy and he just came back with an extra uh, machine he doesn't need. And so you can get to the bottom of these things without paying full sticker price because you're going to the people that have been in your shoes. And I think identifying those connections and really being genuine in your ask, again, for advice, not for anything tangible, will lead you in the right direction to get those breaks you need as you start out. And it might sound soft and warm and fuzzy, but I promise, try it and let me know how that sounds because, or let me know how it works because I think it really will surprise you with the extent people will want to help you get off the ground.
1: Yeah, I think that's key. That is something I definitely wish I had taken to heart earlier in my career, the fact that people do want to help you. I think it, most of us, we do think we've got to have it all figured out. We've got to be, you know, totally independent. But the reality is that there are folks who have walked the path that you're trying to go down, and they really don't see you as competition, you know, per se. They, they, in a lot of cases, want to mentor people and help you along. So let them help you. Um, and, you know, you also talk about if you are... In the right frame of mind, and you're kind of set for making a jump. In a lot of cases, there's some luck that's going to await you on the other side. and And I can definitely say that that's certainly been the case for me. I've seen luck always be there when you're ready to receive it. And maybe that's something that's happened to you personally as well. Um, Is that something that you found with most of the case studies in your book that, that luck was a part of them making a jump successfully?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think we talked a little bit about this framework that I found that the book's based on. And the third piece of it which comes after you've listened to the voice and planned and done some financial uh, savings and and things like that to get the nitty gritty out of the way, you got to jump, and it's what Michael Lewis, the finance author, uh, who's you know wrote Moneyball and Liar's Poker and all this, he's actually one of the forty four case studies in the book. And what he said is you have to let yourself be lucky, and I love that because I don't think any jump is made and successfully completed without a bunch of luck. And if you think about it, when you hear well-known folks or your neighbors speak about a risk they took, they often say, I couldn't imagine this happening, but it did. Or I was so surprised, it was completely unexpected. And that's the whole point, is that things are going to happen in your jump that will surprise you, that will give you some luck, but you have to jump to see them. And I think that's a really big point. I mean, if there's one message I would say to folks is that, yes, we've talked a lot about planning and being thoughtful, but you can plan your whole life. And at some point you have to jump. And I remember uh, speaking with the founder, one of the founders of LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman, when I was just sketching out this framework. And he said that this was, to me, the biggest point for him around knowing you don't know everything, not having full certainty, but jumping anyway. And the way I think about it is this. I was planning on that spreadsheet and in those budgeting tools and on my slide deck for months and months and months, and I might have got to 60% certainty that I knew what was going to come once I jumped, but I never would get to 70% and I would never ever get to 100%. If I kept planning, I would hit diminishing marginal returns, meaning that at 60% one year, after another year of planning, I might be at 61% and then 61.5% certainty, but it would, it would slow. So, when you get to that point where you've planned all you can, you've saved and you've hit your targets, you have to jump. And in my story, I mean, it was surreal. As you know, Laura, I left thinking I'd go for three months and um, 20 countries. That was my goal travel 20 countries in a few months, see the world. You know, it ended up being 18 months and almost a half million miles or 300,000 miles and 50 something countries. And it changed my life. And yet, all of that unknown that gave me all of that luck never would have ever been possible to plan for in my desk in Boston before i left
1: were you really concerned about telling your coworkers and bosses at bain that you were leaving was that kind of something that was always in the back of your mind being a little nervous about about leaving your your current situation
2: oh my gosh it was like imagine like the you know breaking up with someone you love you know it was like that it was it was this feeling of am i really doing this will they understand And will I ever get a job again? I I truly didn't think that it it, it it was a for sure that I could ever be accepted back in the business world. It just seemed really, really, really daunting to me to be closing a door. Because here's the thing, when you jump, you know what you're giving up. I knew my salary. I knew the next 30 years. I knew what was coming up. But I didn't know what I was getting. I had a rough plan for a month in New Zealand. And that was basically it. And so Shutting the door and having that final conversation, no matter how excited I was to jump, how much I was looking forward to it, how I knew this was something I wouldn't regret, it still scared the crap out of me. It was something that even I remember I went to a taco place in in Palo Alto with my boss, who I just have so much respect for and such a good guy. And I just I was trembling. It was the hardest conversation by far I've ever had in my professional career, and one of the hardest conversations I had in my life because I knew I was getting off the path then. And there was this unknown. And what I'll tell you is that that unknown, the piece that scared me the most, as I said earlier, that unknown is what ultimately delivered the best people, memories, and experiences that ultimately led me to start this when to jump platform and movement. So I think it all worked out and I couldn't imagine my life differently, but it didn't make it less scary at the time.
1: Yeah, I find that there are almost two separate fears in a lot of cases. One is the fear of the the new adventure, but then the, also the fear of saying goodbye to the the current situation. And we kind of build that up in our brain to make it just scarier and scarier. And then often what happens is that conversation goes really well. And, you, you know, you think, I can't believe that that I was so afraid of saying goodbye. Is that what you felt? Was it just a much easier conversation after the, uh, you know, after you kind of got it out and off your chest.
2: Oh my gosh, that's exactly right. So I remember telling my boss at this taco shop and he said, you know, obviously I'll be disappointed as someone who personally enjoys being around you and, and our friendship. But I can tell you, even from a professional standpoint, this is the right move. And that just struck me because all I was looking for was for them not to be upset. And not only was he not upset, but this, this man, 20, 30 years older than me, was looking at my decision to go play professional squash, to leave the firm, give them a void that they'd have to go fill after training me and promoting me and moving me to different places. And he was saying this was a professionally smart move. And from there, every conversation after that reinforced it. You know, it, I wouldn't say it was just because I worked at a firm with nice people, but I think folks really respected the fact I was trying something that I knew I had to try. And many of them had jumps that they, they had never made. And so again, it goes back to saying it out loud, will do things for you that you, you could never predict. And I would never have known that all 10 of the partners I talked to would say, you got to do this, stay in touch. I wish I did something like this when I had the chance, I almost did X, Y, and Z. Uh, Please keep me posted. Let me know how I can help. Maybe we'll even keep the lights on for you if you want. Stay in touch. And again, I don't think that was specific to just my situation. I think that's what happens when you're honest about what you really want to do. And you have to be smart and you have to have a plan. But these folks, you know, I I got buy-in really early. They knew I loved playing squash. They knew that I was playing tournaments on the side. I was you know, going down on trains at night and flights in the morning and back to, to work the next day. And they admired that I had something I cared about. And so that was the natural progression was over a couple of years. They knew that might be something I want to try. And they were very supportive when I brought it up.
1: Yeah, that's so affirming. Well, Mike, I think this has been really helpful. I hope that folks who are listening will take your experience and advice and and all of the examples that you give in the book and use that to sort of craft their own jump, whether it's a little jump or a big jump. We've all got a lot of uncertainty in our lives and our careers and so i think it's important to approach each opportunity with as much open mindedness as you can and you know looking at the fact that other people have made big probably bigger jumps than we will ever make. And it's worked out really well. And as you said, you know, if it doesn't work out, you can always go back to that life you had before. Uh, But I don't know many people who have taken a big jump and then had to go back or even wanted to go back.
2: Yeah, you know, you asked this earlier, what did I find in common? with folks that I've done you know, research on. And, and again, the book is 44 stories that have been filtered down to from hundreds and hundreds of others that I've had over the last five years since sketching a cover page to this book. And I can tell you, Laura, if, if you're thoughtful around your jump, if you take those steps, and if that's something you really want to try, I have not talked to one person out of those you know, hundreds and hundreds of folks I've interviewed, informally or not, who said I regret doing this. And in fact, if you're listening to this saying, well, you just talked to people that had successful jumps. I talked to a lot of people, a lot of people who really you know, were, were on paper failures, or quote unquote failures in what they did. And yet those were our, my biggest advocates, my loudest cheerleaders, the strongest voices of support of saying, you've got to jump. And so I, I can tell you if you're listening to this, whether your jump is a side jump, in your lifestyle that you want to change or a full career jump or an internal jump where you want to change within your company. If you if you go about it the right way, I promise you, you won't regret it.
1: Mike, where can the listeners connect with you?
2: Sure. Our platform is based on website, whentojump.com. We have a newsletter that comes out monthly. Uh, as you know, we have a podcast that comes out on Tuesday mornings where we talk to folks about their own jump experiences, uh, well-known folks to everyday people. Um, And then we've got uh, the book that that you so uh, nicely mentioned earlier. I think if you're if you're looking for permission, if you want that game plan and and real advice and and a bit of inspiration, that's what I've been crafting the last five years. so I, I hope you like it. and please reach out through our website if you if you have any thoughts.
1: Well, good luck with the book. and thanks so much again for being on the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Laura.
1: I loved having Mike on the show. And I want to wrap up by reviewing five steps to financially prepare to quit your job or change careers. Number one, you want to save a set amount each month. Choose a dollar amount to save from each paycheck or from your monthly income. Could be as little as $100, but try to save as much as you possibly can in a dedicated savings account. Maybe call it your jump fund and promise yourself not to touch it until you jump. Number two, budget for the bad. We talked about this. You want to imagine your jump going kind of poorly and then create a worst case scenario budget. Number three, buy what you need for less. So identify what purchases you're going to need to make before you jump. Sometimes you need to buy things, sometimes you don't, depending on what you're going to do. Scout around and find what you can for less. The sooner you start, the more likely you'll be to stumble on great deals before you jump. Number four, beg, borrow, and barter. So this is all about bootstrapping by not paying full price or not paying for anything until you absolutely need to. So tap into any connections that you have and when possible barter to avoid using your precious cash right off the bat. And number five, prepare and then let yourself be lucky. You want to have a clear, simple, but real world view of how you'll financially survive your jump. You can't plan every aspect of a major career or life change, but you've got to do your preparation. Talk to people who know the career or business you want to get into. And then when you've done that preparation, it's time to jump. You won't have it all figured out financially or otherwise, but if you followed these five steps and done as much homework as possible, you will have some cash and some thoughtful considerations under your belt, and then you're going to meet luck on the other side of the jump. Thanks again to Mike for being on the show, and thank you for being here. Keep listening, learning, and leveraging your resources to grow richer every single day. If you want to keep the money conversation going with a terrific community, join my private Facebook group. Called Dominate Your Dollars. Just text the word dollars to the number 33444 and you'll get an invitation. And subscribe to my weekly email to do that. You can also text me. Just text get updates with no space to the number 33444. I send out a free, short weekly email that's filled with tips, tools, and recommendations that I think you'll enjoy. And if you've got a money question, feedback about the show, or ideas, go ahead and contact me. You can reach me at lauradadams.com on my contact page. That's all for now. I'll talk to you next week. Courtesy of Money Girl, your guide to a richer life.